You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from our youth pastor, Josh Rogers. Christians throughout the history of the church for thousands of years have called communion the center of Christian worship. And yet, it only takes up such a tiny little sliver of time in our worship service and in our week, and yet, for some reason, they say it is the center. And so we're going to explore that because there's much more going on with communion. It is not just a tiny little moment in your Sunday um, worship. It is meant to echo throughout your week and throughout your day and has a lot of implications. And before we can really get into what Jesus says about communion when he established it, we have to go even further back. We've got to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, into the history of Israel. We're going back to Genesis and Exodus, and I'm going to be going through a lot of the Bible today. Literally, we are going from the beginning all the way to the very end. Um, But first, I just want to focus on three really pivotal historical moments and three pivotal um, uh, holidays that Israel celebrated that coincide with one another. And those three are Passover, which I think a lot of us are familiar with that. If you've ever seen like a movie, Ten Commandments or Prince of Egypt, you know about the Passover. It's a very well-known Jewish holiday and event. Um, But some less known ones are the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Weeks which we call Pentecost, Um, so the Feast of Weeks. And so those three holidays are very central to who Israel sees themselves as and their identity because they're tied with three super important events in their history that really defined their identity as a nation. Um, Prior to that, they were these different tribes, all united through uh, their father Abraham, but just kind of these different tribes, and God finally brought them under kind of one roof as one nation under his law and his covenant. And so we're going to be looking at those three to kind of get some foundation before we kind of start expounding on what communion is and what it means for us. So the first one I mentioned was Passover. Passover was an event that took place when Israel was enslaved to Egypt. All right, Um, Israel was enslaved to Egypt for hundreds of years. And finally, God heard the cries of Israel, and God rose up Moses. All right, many of us have heard of Moses. And so he sends Moses, and he tells Moses to let my people go. Right, come on, y'all Y'all know this one. Uh, (laughs) And you know what Moses said? No. And so God uh, sent 10 plagues to, I mean, sorry, not Moses. I saw my wife shaking her head. I was like, what did I say wrong? Pharaoh. (laughs) Pharaoh said no. (laughs) And so Pharaoh said no. And so God was going to send 10 plagues that were going to convince Pharaoh that no, he really should let God's people go. And so these 10 plagues happened, but the last one that's coming was going to wipe out, very scary, very terrifying, was going to wipe out the firstborn of every household in Egypt. That's including Egyptians and Israelites, actually. Just anyone in Egypt, they were going to get wiped out. And so God told Moses to give the Israelites some very explicit, detailed instructions. And some of those instructions included um, sacrificing a lamb, 
um, taking its blood and spreading it over the doorpost, then cooking that lamb, eating that lamb, interestingly enough, while standing up, and make some bread, but don't put yeast in it, that flat bread, none of that nice fluffy stuff. And you want to season it with bitter, bitter herbs, bitter herbs, herbs that are so bitter that when you eat them, it's kind of like chopping an onion and it makes your eyes water, okay? And they're going to do all of this. And by spreading that blood over their, over their household doorframe, that would let, when God came through and all the firstborn were going to be striped, they were, he was going to know to pass over that household. Oh, that's why it's called Passover. <laughs> God's going to pass over and spare them from judgment, right? Spare them from losing their firstborn. And this led to the redemption of Israel because Egypt said, get the heck out of here after that happened. And so Israel is freed and redeemed from Egypt. This is Passover. This is incredibly important to who Israel is. Possibly the most important holiday that they celebrated. Another important one that I mentioned was the Feast of Tabernacles. So once they escaped from Egypt, you know, we've all heard about the promised land, right? And eventually they get land. Well, that didn't happen for 40 years. And so for 40 years, they just wandered about in the desert, okay? And so they didn't have a permanent home, and so they lived out of tabernacles or what's called tents, like really nice um, tents. And so they would set these up, live in them for a while, and then move to a new area, move to a new area. And so there are constantly these kind of nomads living out of these tents. And during this time, there's no way for you to plant crops to produce a harvest. So there's no way to really feed yourself and sustain yourself. And so what they had to do was God sent what's called manna from heaven. It was this bread-like substance that they could eat or cook with and use. And so every morning they had to depend that God would continue to provide for them this manna. And so that was really important. This time they lived in the tents and this time that they depended on God for this manna from heaven. And so in order to celebrate that, celebrate how God provided for them all those years while they were um, in the desert before the promised land, they would go and um, set up these little huts or these little tents outside their homes. And throughout the week when they were celebrating the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would eat all their meals inside of the tent so that they could kind of like really experience what their forefathers experienced in the desert, like have this tangible experience that was um, just like what they experienced so they could remember that and appreciate that and appreciate the way that God had provided for them all that time. In a similar way, when they celebrate Passover, they prepare the same meal. They prepare the lamb and they prepare the, the flatbread with no yeast with the bitter herbs. Okay, they do a few other things, but those are the main ones we're focusing on. And then the last holiday I mentioned was the Feast of Weeks, what we call Pentecost. And this is called the Feast of Weeks because they celebrate it seven weeks after Passover. That's 49 days. And on the 50th day, back in Israel's history, when they were wandering in the desert, Moses called all the elders of Israel, and he took them up onto the side of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is a really important mountain because that's where Moses met with God and God gave him the Ten Commandments. So a really important place where Israel was kind of meeting with God during this early formation of them as a nation. And when they went up there, they sacrificed a lot of lambs to God saying, thank you, thank you for freeing us and providing for us. Um, and they had a great giant feast with God kind of in his presence. And then Moses took all the blood from those sacrificed lambs that they had killed and eaten and he dipped a branch in it, and then he took that blood and he sprinkled it all over the elders of Israel. 
He sprinkled it all over them. And this was part of a ceremony to kind of cleanse them because during this event, God gave the Israelites his law and made a new covenant with them. Okay, so this is when God made his covenant and gave them the Torah, like what we find in the first five books of the Bible and whatnot. He gives them this law. And this law isn't just a set of rules. It's their identity. It's like who they are. It's how they're going to relate with God and relate to everyone around them and relate with other nations. This is like who they are as a people. And so this was a very important event, and they continue to celebrate this. They wait seven weeks after Passover, important holiday, and then the next day or the next week, they celebrate what's called the Feast of Weeks to celebrate this time when God had given them the law and essentially given them their identity as Israelites. Okay, so I had on the screen over there all those holidays because I didn't want you to lose track because I knew that was a lot of information. But these three events are so crucial to who Israel sees themselves as. This is like, there's this, their identity in a nutshell, essentially. And this is something for hundreds of years that they would continue to celebrate and reflect on, and it would continue to define them as a people. And this is really important, important because these events and these holidays actually coincide with Passover, I mean, with communion, when Jesus established it. Jesus didn't just establish communion out of thin air, like, oh, this might be a good idea. What's nearby? Oh, some bread, some juice. Sure, let's do this. Um, it wasn't something that Jesus just completely made up. It actually tied deeply with these prior events and these um, feasts that the Israelites celebrated. And so we're going to look more deeply at that. I'm actually going to because I just want it to be fresh in our minds, I want to reread Luke 22, 14 through 20, which was the inspiration Lisa read this morning. I'll move a little quicker since you've already heard it once. But starting in verse 14, it says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So they are actually eating during the feast of Passover, the holiday of Passover. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so let's see how exactly what Jesus is establishing here actually ties back to these holidays, which I think is going to give us a, a nice foundation to build our understanding of communion and our appreciation of it. Um, so the Lord's Supper, communion, is presented here as a new Passover meal. It's like a new Passover meal. Um, you've got You've got, they just ate lamb, they just had that bread, and so with the lamb's blood in the original Passover, it covered them so that judgment would pass over them. But now Jesus is serving as this new lamb, and we're going to get more into that, but I just want to put that out. Jesus is now serving as the new lamb and is kind of fulfilling Passover, right? He mentioned that briefly. He talks about this is the fulfillment of uh, Passover. And so he's being the new fulfillment of Passover because this meal does not represent salvation and freedom from Egypt. It represents salvation being offered to the whole world, right? Jesus' death on the cross is being represented here in communion as salvation offered to the whole world and freedom, not just from Egypt, but oppression from all sin and all death. You see how it went from like similar, 
but so much greater, so much more infinite. Similarly, uh, the Lord's Supper or communion is being presented here as a new manna, much like the manna the Israelites ate when traveling the wilderness in the tents, much like the, the manna that they reflect on when they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now it is being presented as a new manna. Notice disciples don't freak out when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. It's not because it wasn't weird for him to say that. It was, but they had already just freaked out earlier <laughs> because Jesus actually already talked about this. In John 6, which we're going to put up and read really quick, starting in verse 32, Jesus said to a group of people, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He continues on later on on verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So the disciples, trust me, had already had <laughs> some time to really process this really weird teaching. Um, and in fact, later on, Jesus is like, hey, are you going to abandon me because of my weird teachings? And they're like, I mean, where else are we going to go for eternal life? I mean, it was weird. And do we understand it? No, but we got nowhere else to go. So we're with you, man. Um, but Jesus here is saying, if you want eternal life, if you want to be full and satisfied forever, you're going to have to eat this new bread that is his body. And this doesn't mean that Jesus is saying you're going to actually nibble on human flesh. Absolutely not. What he is saying is that real human flesh, his, the real body of the Son of God will have to be sacrificed for you. It's going to have to be sacrificed for you, and you're going to have to accept that if you want to experience this eternal life. There's only one way to this eternal life that this new manna is offering, and that's through the bodily sacrifice of death. Uh, uh, sacrifice and death of Jesus, his body on the cross, which is what communion is representing. Additionally, the Lord's Supper um, or communion is presented as a new covenant meal, much like the meal that Moses and the elders had on Mount Sinai when God presented them the law and the Torah, and they had this beautiful meal and this um, ceremony where God gave them his covenant and established it with them and gave them his law. Jesus is doing a very similar thing. And in fact, in Exodus, when Moses does the sprinkling of the blood on Israel, God says this, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Sounds very similar to what Jesus echoes when he establishes communion. When he's talking about the wine, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That's no mistake. Jesus knew the Bible up and down. He knew exactly that he was echoing those similar words when he established this. And so like the lambs that were slain and, and the blood that was sprinkled um, over the elders, Jesus would be a sacrificial lamb that stands in the place of our sins. 
John the Baptist would declare later, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In communion, Jesus is also ushering in a new covenant. He is presenting us, much like God presented on Mount Sinai, a covenant to the Israelites. He is presenting us with a new covenant. The prophets in the Old Testament talk about this new covenant, that it will be eternal, that it will forgive all our sins, that God will write his laws on our hearts, and that he'll fill us with his spirit. In the Feast of Weeks, they, thought, they, they reflected on and celebrated when God gave his law to them externally. But this new covenant will put his law in our hearts. And not only that, his own spirit and power will be inside of us to empower us to follow that law that is now written on our hearts. You see how this is like fulfilling what that old Feast of the Weeks um, talked about? Now he's establishing this new covenant that is so much better. And so we're not just connecting communion thematically with these old events and these holidays that the Israelites celebrated. We're, we're showing that Jesus is actually fulfilling them in what communion represents. What he is about to do on the cross and what communion intimately represents for them is the fulfillment of these old um, promises, of these old events, and of these holidays. They represent an even greater realization than prior. They accomplish even more and are more fuller and more complete than what God had done previously. And so communion is the fulfillment of these things. And that's really the foundation that I want us to build on of what does communion now mean for us and what does it look like to um, participate and to worship in it? Um, because Communion isn't just something odd that Jesus established, and it's not just this, uh, oh, parallel to what the Jews used, used to do in the Old Testament times, but it is a, a real, like, fulfillment of those prior things. Like, those were only an echo or a shadow of what Jesus or what God was going to do in an even greater capacity. And we should feel the weight of that history and of that meaning when we're approaching communion, of what God has done and what he is fulfilling. But like I said, how are we then to participate in communion? I want us to keep all of that foundation and that background with us because I think that informs a lot of what it looks like to participate. But Paul actually gives us some um, instructions and some clarity on what it looks like to approach communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So let's break that down for us and see what that means. Um, there's three things I want us to uh, look at what communion means for us. One is that communion is about remembering. Okay, I'm going to give you a little outline so you can follow along because I'm going to hit a lot. Communion is about remembering. 
Communion is also about experiencing, all right, how we experience it and what that experience does to us. And then communion is also about action. It's about doing something. It's about not just doing the event that happens here on a Sunday, but propelling you into your week, into your life, into your day, outside these walls to do more, okay? So it's about remembering, it's about experiencing, and it's about doing I think it's pretty obvious, it's kind of basic level, that communion is about remembering. Jesus really hits that pretty hard when he says, remember me, do this in remembering me. It's memorializing what Jesus has done for us by suffering, by serving, and by dying on the cross for us. And much like those holidays that the Jews celebrated, and even still celebrate, that define them as a people for thousands of years, that really they wrap their identity around those, This defines us. Communion and what it represents defines us as followers of Christ. We are not perfect, but we are made clean by what Jesus Christ has done. We don't deserve to be, but we are made children of God because of Jesus Christ's faithfulness on the cross. And if we forget this or we take this for granted, or we don't even take it seriously enough, we're forgetting who we are as Christians. Communion is about remembering who you are in Christ. It's about, if we we lose that, we're forgetting our identity in Christ. And it's kind of like if you don't know your job, you can't do your job, right? If you don't know who you are in Christ, you can't live that out. Communion, like I said, is also about experiencing. Paul stresses a lot here and kind of just how important the act of communion is some of the preparation that comes into it, some of the ways in which you approach it, the way in which you experience this is very important. Like that was established in the Passover meal, God had them eat the same lamb and eat the same bitter bread year after year to remember Passover. They would go in the tents and experience what it was like to live in a tent for a week so that they could remember that time that the Israelites spent in the desert and had to depend on God for bread and for substance. Um, this is about experiencing what Christ has done for us. And it's really awesome that God chose to use something so basic in who we are, right? He appeals in communion just in a basic level, like to our senses, right? To our fundamental, like, human senses of taste and touch and smell and sight, right? Like, you're getting to experience something. It's not just reading it on, you know, reading the words on, um, on, on the book of the Bible, right? Which is great, but it's not just reading it in the cerebral thing, and it's not just like maybe repeating something, kind of like the Lord's Prayer, which is also a great thing he gave us, but it's something that like appeals to every bit of your senses, and I love that that's a part of the experience. And so on the one hand, these elements are about you know, experiencing that bread and that um, juice on a very surface level and being reminded, being encouraged, having our faith built and strengthened, right? It's a process that happens, but what else are they for us? So the bread we talked about representing new manna. Manna gave them substance and gave them life, but new manna, he says, promises you eternal life. And we get to eat this bread, but we shouldn't just be reminded. We should have ourselves be strengthened by it. We are, like, as Christians, you have to continuously rely on God's grace. It's not like a one-and-done deal. You don't just say the prayer and then just stop caring, you know, just stop 
thinking about what God has done for you or depending on him, right? It's meant to be the kickstarter. That first moment of turning your life over to him is meant to be that kickstarter that's supposed to build your faith even more and more. You're supposed to trust in him even more and more. And in the same way, we have to return to communion. We have to return to that bread and be reminded that we depend on that broken body, that broken body that, that died on the cross for you. You're completely dependent on it. And so when we take the bread in communion, we're reminded of that, that we are dependent on this body, that we need to hold on to this body, this bread, this new manna um, for the sake of our lives. Then he talks about the cup. You notice he mentions cup a lot. He doesn't talk about necessarily what's in the cup a lot, the wine. He keeps talking about drinking of this cup and taking this cup. Um, he uses the, cup, the word cup a lot more. And what he's, what's kind of being alluded to there is what I call a cup of sacrifice. If you've noticed Jesus, go back through the Gospels and kind of read through Jesus' use of the word cup. When he's talking about a cup, he's usually talking about a cup of sacrifice or what some label a cup of wrath. Um, I, I have a few examples to help you understand. There's the story of the two disciples, I believe it's John and James, they're arguing amongst themselves about who's going to be the greatest. Who, when Jesus comes to f- completely in like true Messiah form and is like ruler of the world and kingdom of God is taken over and Jesus is sitting on his throne, hey, who gets to sit to your left and to your right? Obviously, they haven't been listening to him very well. And so Jesus rebukes them. He's like, stop arguing about this. That is not about who gets to lead and who gets to be in power and who gets to be in charge. It's not about that. It's about serving and it's about sacrifice. And he says, so whoever wants to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be the least on this time in your life, on this earth. And he says, so if you truly want to sit by my side, then you'll need to drink of the same cup that I drink from. You can go read it. He talks about, you'll need a drink of the same cup that I drink from. And he doesn't go in explicitly what he means, but the the rest of the scripture kind of unpacks this idea that they'll have to suffer and have to die for the gospel and for the kingdom of God if they truly want to experience greatness in the kingdom of heaven. That means that they're going to have to have their hearts changed where they're willing to lay down everything for God. And so he's saying, if you want to drink of this cup, this cup of sacrifice, this, this cup of um, sacrifice. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, the evening before he is arrested and crucified, in anguish, Jesus is praying to God. And what he says in Luke 22, this is, this is just probably a couple of hours after um, he established communion, the Lord's Supper with his disciples. Jesus is praying and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is saying, take this thing I'm about to go do away from me. Take this walk to the cross, this painful experience, this nailing on the cross, this bodily death, but also me taking on the sins of all the world and experiencing your wrath for those sins, your judgment for those sins, the physical and the spiritual death I'm going to experience on the cross. That's the cup he's talking about. All right? And so cup gets repeated all throughout the Gospels by Jesus, and it's typically representing this idea that this is a sacrifice. And so on the one hand, I want to say when you're taking communion, you're taking bread, you're stepping into life, right? You're stepping into this new, incredible, eternal life that Jesus is offering us. But on the other hand, right, for those who really know the Gospel, Jesus is also inviting you to die. 
He's inviting you to die, to drink of this cup of sacrifice, that you're going to have to die to yourself, that you're going to have to die to your sin. Paul helps us understand this in Romans 6 a little better. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united in a resurrection like his. For we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ has raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Communion is offering us this, to drink of the cup, to die of our sins, but to eat of the bread, to step into eternal life. This is what we can experience through communion, this unity with Christ in his death and in his resurrected life. We are being offered to experience the death of our sins, but to, ex- to walk into the resurrected life that's in communion. So it's not just a metaphor. Communion is, is something you can start living today when you take that, when you walk out the doors, is to continually keep dying to your sin, right? Because it, we all... Hopefully, we all know it doesn't stop that temptation and that struggle, but we're called to continually die to that sin, but continually to step into his life that he's offering us. That's what communion is. That is a new kickstart each time that we um, take that. Other ways that we experience through communion is we experience unity with the body of Christ, right? This is something we're all doing together, side by side, and he says, Paul says, we're all proclaiming the death of Christ. We're all going to proclaim the death of Christ when we partake in it together. The person to your left and the person to your right, you're getting to preach and proclaim that to one another. But also what's incredible is there are few things in church history that have been done since Jesus walked the earth, that have been continued. Like there's, there's no song out there that we still sing and worship that's the exact same songs. It says after Jesus established the Lord's Supper with them, it says they sang some hymns together. We don't have a clue what hymns they were singing. Maybe they were singing the Psalms, but we don't know what tune those went to. We don't have a clue. This is one of the few things. You've got like baptisms, you've got the Old Testament scriptures, and you've got this. That's pretty much the only thing. And so I think it's so like encouraging, and it builds my faith so much to think like people who died for the gospel so that I can have it now, I'm sharing in the same act of just taking some bread and putting it in this juice of the fruit of grapes and and, and enjoying that, but thinking and dwelling on Christ and what he's done for me. There are millions who have done that, who are long dead now, that you're doing that with in unity. That is a very faith-building exercise when you think about that. And finally, we're experiencing Christ. We're experiencing an intimate moment with him. All right, so don't let that pass you by. Spiritually, Christ is with us in this moment when we take it. It's a powerful moment to remember him, to worship him, and really unite yourself when you're partaking in his body and blood through communion. And then the the last thing I said, communion is about doing. It's about action. 
because I believe communion is not meant to be just a one-minute thing you do once a week. At our church, we do it once a week. Some churches, they do it once a month, some once a quarter, some once a year. Um, It's not just meant to just be this one little special moment. Paul says it is about proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. And it's a promise of his return, right? And it's a promise of his resurrection. But it's about preaching this truth to everyone, but not just through this one action. It's about continually preaching the communion life to others. And so Paul gives us some additional important instructions. And one of the things that he talks about is this idea of taking care of your business. That last part in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we read, it, he gets pretty heated because he doesn't like that people aren't taking it seriously. And the reason why it needs to be taken seriously is because it's about a very serious thing. It's about the sacrifice of the Son of God. And so, you know, he's saying, you know, communion, so it's about God's love and his sacrifice and his forgiveness, but then we're going to approach communion, we're going to come and partake in that, we're going to enjoy that and celebrate that, but at the same time, you're going to hold on to a grudge, you're going to hold on to some unforgiveness you have towards someone, you're going to hold on to some kind of sin that you just do not want to let go. You're going to hold on to some kind of guilt that's burdening you when literally communion represents the complete freedom of those things, the complete release of those things. And so yet you're going to hold on to those things and carry them with you when you go to take communion. It's, 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 it's kind of awful and completely antithetical to communion to go and celebrate the forgiveness you have in Christ, the grace you have in Christ, but not extend that grace and forgiveness to somebody else. It's just completely antithetical to communion. And so Paul is saying, hey, go ahead and take care of that. Like, take care of that guilt, of that unforgiveness, of that sin. He's saying, sort it out. Pause with God and sort through this. Repent of it and be cleansed of it. Maybe you take the opportunity to sort that out and let somebody know you're sorry or repent or forgive them. Um, Or maybe you just take that moment to finally give it over to God, which is going to spur you on to seek out reconciliation with somebody. But the point is we're supposed to pause and, and, and sort that out with God. Bring it before God so that we can actually really partake and enjoy what communion is. Because if we're holding on to that, we're not, really, we're not really embracing communion for what it is. And so I really do today, especially, I want to encourage everyone not to rush it. I'm not saying take forever. I'm, I'm not saying it even has to be a long time. It just needs to be sincere. And I know for me, sometimes that takes some time to pause and be sincere before God when it comes to being restored by him in forgiveness. And finally, it's about, when we say doing, it's about focusing on Jesus. I I think this might seem just like basic. He's saying, you know, he's saying, remember me. He repeats that over and over. He says, remember me. When the ushers come and they're, um, you know, presenting you with communion and you come up to say, they're all going to say, remember Jesus who died for you, right? That's typically what the ushers say, something of that nature, because they want you to pause and think about what you're about to do. You're supposed to remember 
him, right? Jesus doesn't tell us to um, remember your to-do list later on while you're standing there about to take communion. He isn't telling us to think about how I wish they'd played a different worship song during communion because, man, it's killing my vibe, right? That's not what that's about. He's saying, remember me, remember Jesus. He's saying, don't be thinking about how you don't like the bread today or how the wafer tastes or what the juice is like or where it all came from. That's not what he wants you to be focusing on. He says, remember me. I see some people laughing because you know we all do it, right? We all do it. I've been there. I have, I have not remembered Jesus in a moment when I should be, when, when it's so key. Uh, on me and Elizabeth's wedding day, we had a moment where you step off to the side and we took communion together. And it was a moment to say, we don't, we're not thinking about the people here. We're not thinking about the wedding. We're not thinking about our future marriage. We're not thinking about each other. We're only going to think about Jesus in this moment. We're only going to think about him. So we go over there, we take communion, we break off a piece of bread, and uh, it's really hard because it's been sitting there for a very long time, and we dip it in the juice, and we take a bite, and oh, crunch, just like a hard crunch. And Elizabeth, in this beautiful, intimate moment where we're going to focus on Jesus, leans over and says, I think my mouth is bleeding. (laughs) So yeah, we got distracted for a moment, (laughs) but we, we... we pushed through and we paused and we prayed and we didn't think about the moment. We didn't think about each other. We just remembered Jesus. And that's what it's about, remembering his sacrificial love, his grace, and what communion actually represents and how we're supposed to take that same sacrificial love, that same kind of grace and forgiveness that God has shown us. We're supposed to take it from that moment and take it back with us take it out those doors, outside the walls, and really show people what it looks like to be a communion-living Christian, right? Like one who really took what communion was serious to heart and is actually now living it out there, showing people what it looks like to be dead to your sins but to walk alive in Christ, to show people what it really looks like to extend grace that goes beyond all reason, all right? That's what communion is about. It's about this incredible moment where you're changed by God and you get to show others what that looks like. And this is what God wants for us. He gave us communion. He wants us to love it and to enjoy it. He wants to show us um, his love again and again in unique and great ways. He wants us to dwell on his sacrifice for you. He wants you to experience his presence and his grace in that moment. He wants you to taste the death of your sins, but also taste what the life in resurrection looks like. And he wants you to have your faith strengthened so that you can live communion out beyond the walls of the church. And finally, this is just a foretaste. Like those Israel holidays that they celebrated was just a foretaste of what Jesus was bringing in communion. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm not going to eat this bread and drink this wine again until this communion, this Passover is fulfilled in the kingdom of God at the end of time. And so as you're sharing in the Lord's Supper, be filled with the hope that it points to something even greater and even more than what we already have, an even greater fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth where we will enjoy the greatest communion. 
In Revelations 19, 6 through 9, it says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen representing the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are all those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Let us pray. Lord, thank you so much that you have given us communion, that you've given us the Lord's Supper. But we thank you even more so that you have given us hope and something to look forward to, that you have invited each and every one of us to the wedding feast of the Lamb's Supper. We pray now that we will come before you and truly be changed by your body and by your blood this morning. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.